we're going to make this accident the best thing that ever happened to us. Not the accident, but what we do and who we could become because of it. And so, you know, in the early days, she didn't know her prognosis. She didn't understand. Nobody was clear with her about what this meant, you know, and she kind of said, when am I going to start moving my legs again? You know, she thought she was going to go into surgery and just recover. You know, I told her, you know, this is not, this is not where your story ends. You know, I'm going to do everything and we are going to talk to people. We're going to do everything. And so she just told herself then she's not going to be the plane crash girl. It's almost cliche to say that our lives could change in a moment's notice, but we rarely think that it could happen to us. This week on the Life Amplified podcast, my guest is going to share her story of what happened after a small plane crash injured multiple members of her family and left her 20-year-old daughter paralyzed from the waist down and told that she would never walk again. How do you create resilience as a mom to step up and hold a family and business together? And how do you advocate for a family member who's facing a grim diagnosis? Dr. Tara Scott is going to give us the answers this week. Welcome back to Life Amplified. What is an amplified life? It's having amplified relationships with people who support and encourage you to be your best. It's having amplified energy to conquer the challenges of the day. And it's having an amplified career, one that's meaningful to you, the world, and your bank account. I'm Dan Mason, Life Reinvention Coach, helping you discover your calling and create an amplified life on your terms. This is the Life Amplified Podcast. If living through a global pandemic over the last 12 months has taught us anything, it's the importance of emotional resilience during times of crisis. And this week's guest on Life Amplified is going to give us a roadmap to create that for ourselves, plus a whole lot of inspiration. Now, Dr. Tara Scott during the day is known as the hormone guru. With over 25 years of experience as a doctor and three board certifications and OBGYN, functional medicine, and integrative medicine. Dr. Scott has helped thousands of patients struggling with hormone issues, including endometriosis, breast cancer, weight gain, and more. And yet, what you're going to discover during this interview is all that knowledge and expertise meant little when her family was faced with a devastating health crisis. A routine small plane ride in July of 2019 ended in tragedy. Her husband suffered a severe brain injury. Her daughter was left paralyzed from the waist down. And Dr. Tara Scott was the one trying to pick up the pieces and hold it together. Some of the topics we're going to cover this week are how Tara cultivated resilience as a mother and was able to step up to hold both her family and her practice together. She's going to talk about some specific tools that work for stress management, the power of community and being able to receive support when you're used to being the person supporting others. She's going to talk about navigating a crisis one step at a time. We'll talk about how to maintain hope and a positive mindset in the face of unspeakable tragedy. Plus, you're going to get some inspiration here, too. You'll hear how Tara's daughter has recovered more than doctors ever thought was possible in the span of 18 months. This topic is so powerful, Tara's been invited to speak about it at a TEDx conference later this fall. We're happy to give you the story today, though. And if you're really inspired and moved by what you hear, be sure to let us know. Screenshot the podcast, upload it to Instagram and Twitter. You can find me at CSC Dan Mason, and you can tag Tara at RevitalizeMD. 
This interview is inspiring and a powerful reminder that no matter what the diagnosis is you're getting from a doctor, that in some ways you can still take charge and be the decider of your life. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tara Scott on Life Amplified. Tara Scott, welcome to Life Amplified. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. It's like we're getting the TED Talk before it's actually been given to the public. This is such a powerful story you have about overcoming adversity, resilience, the power of faith, the power of hope. But take me back to July of 2019. I mean, that was just pretty much a routine day for you and your family, getting on a small plane, you know, going to visit family. Uh, Tell me sort of how that day started and how it all unfolded over the course of a couple hours. My husband had been flying over 25 years. He was multi-instrument rated and had been on all his checkoff rides and everything. And so flying for my kids was like hopping in a minivan. And so we were going to pick up one of my kids who was doing a, a college program, a summer camp, and it was no big deal. But We don't know why we inexplicably ran out of gas. And so at that point, you have to, you know, ask to make an unscheduled landing because you're deviating from your flight plan. So there was an airport nearby and, you know, we were making plans to land there, but we literally ran dry out of gas. And so at that time, you know, ironically, the type of plane that we were in, which was a Piper, is known for being able to glide like long, long distances. So, you know, we thought we were just going to glide down to the runway and it became apparent minutes before landing that we weren't going to be short of the runway just by like a mile. So at the last minute, um, you know, my husband had to kind of deviate to find a clearing because it was a little bit of a wooded area and we landed. And to me, I thought it was a little bit rough, you know, maybe like a bad roller coaster that's at a carnival instead of like maybe Disney, you know, And, um, but unfortunately, you know, my husband and my uh, older daughter's uh, shoulder belts weren't weren't working and they sustained more serious injuries. We were talking a little bit before the podcast that I interviewed somebody who was on the Sully Sullenberger flight that went into the Hudson. And for the people on that flight, as it it was going down, they're confronting their mortality. They're thinking about, you know, will my family be okay? From what you're explaining to me, This wasn't necessarily that case for you. You said your family had been in some rough landings over the course of many years with your husband being a pilot. When did you sense that this was going to be different and that this was not not going to go the way you planned? Just to give some context, there's two seats and then a club seating in the middle. So I was sitting in what I find out now is the safest spot, which was back to back with the pilot seat. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't really hear or see out the front. And so when my husband said, you know, we're going to glide down, make sure everybody's seatbelts are buckled. You know, I thought, hmm, that's kind of strange. And I put my book away. My daughter, who was sitting diagonally from me, put her headphones in and she kind of got her eyes got kind of wide. She looked a little nervous. And I said, you know, maybe we should maybe we should pray, you know, to my daughter. And then we started hitting trees on the way down. I'm trained in stress. I can cut a baby out in a a minute in an emergency C-section. You know, I'm used to this. And that capacity has allowed me to thrive through my career up till now. And certainly my functional and integrative medicine training had taught me about breath work. And so I started 
taking some deep breaths, you know, you know what to do, slow your heart rate down, take some deep breaths and concentrate. And, and like I said, I couldn't really see what was going on because I was facing backwards. There were a few thoughts that I thought, should I put my head between my legs? I fly, I fly quite a bit commercially. And they tell you that, you know, when you're landing to assume the crash position, that, that fleeting thought went through my mind. And then, like I said, at the end, then when we started hitting some trees on the way down, and then when my husband, he never lost his school until the very end, when the Eric traffic control said, why, why are you not putting your wheel down? You know, why is your landing gear not down? And he said, we're too low. We're not going to make it. And then that's what that, you know, that's the only time he then was trying to find a place to land the plane. And, you know, his, his flying skill, uh, it contributed to the fact that we're all still alive, you know? Sure. Um, so at that point, then it became, you know, a little bit rough and I could see the fear in my daughter's eyes, you know, wow. But for whatever reason, my ability to be remain calm in that kind of emergency from my medical training and, you know, with the breathing, then I, my life didn't, didn't flash before me. I mean, I think all mm -hmm. those tools I had, I still was calm. So the plane lands, give me a sense of just what happened. It didn't, this wasn't something where you see like in a crash where the plane had broken apart on um, impact, right? Was everything uh, still intact? No, it actually did. I mean, the wings- okay. It did kind of break apart, actually. We landed on the belly of the plane. And, it, you know, when he at the last minute saw we weren't going to make the, the runway, he was looking for a place to put the plane down. And to the left were a lot of trees. And if we would have hit those, we would have all died. Yeah. And to the right were some trees. So there was this very small clearing um, that he landed in, but we skidded into the brush. So the couple of the wings did break off, you know, and mm -hmm. the, the main cabin was intact, you know, but contents were like strewn all over the place. The emergence, I couldn't get, I was seated by the exit. I couldn't get out the exit because of the trees. So I had oh. to get the emergency exit and, you know, the wing, the one wing had come off, both wings had come off of the plane and miraculously my purse, which was unzipped was still right by me. And I just reached in and picked up my phone and nobody else had their phone. I, my phone miraculously was right there, picked it up, called 911, but they couldn't find us because they're looking for smoke and there was no smoke. So they couldn't find the plane. So I literally got out and there was a little clearing and was kind of waving around and there was airport mechanics, helicopter mechanics that hurt. So once, once we missed the runway, they closed the airport. And so they were at the airport after they were doing um, some test runs in the helicopter. And so they said, we're going to go find them. And the air traffic control said, no, airports closed. And they said, no, I think we can find them. And so they said, well, you proceed at your own risk. So they went up and were circling around. And so I was talking to 911 and I was saying, the helicopter just went past us. Tell them to turn around. And, and they were, I thought it was a rescue helicopter. It wasn't. It was independent. So they, you know, they'd have to go through me to them and everything. Sure. But they're seeing me. Thankfully, I was wearing like royal blue. I wasn't running, wearing green or tan. So I stood yeah. out and they saw me waving. Nobody else could get out of the plane. So there were four people on the plane, correct? It was you, your husband, your son, and your daughter. Yes. You and your son sustained very minor injuries in so, this accident. My son was in the front seat. He had several uh, lacerations that he needed to have sewn up. He ended up having a lung contusion and was yeah. hospitalized overnight. Everybody was kind of taken to different hospitals. My husband, you know, had a, had a serious head injury and, a, and some a lot of broken bones. So he was actually airlifted to a major trauma center an hour away. My older daughter instantly couldn't feel her feet. 
you know, so we're really concerned about, she, she couldn't move her legs or feel her feet. They're taking my husband. They said, you can go on the life flight. Your son is going here. Your daughter's going here. Where do you want to go? <laughs> and I was like, how, how do you make that decision? You know, uh, my husband was unconscious and I knew his injuries were very serious, but my kids were alone. You know, we were in New York. We don't know anyone or live there. Sure. So I, I knew in my medical triage that my daughter had the most serious injuries because my husband, my son couldn't get out at first because, you know, if you know anything about a small plane, there's, um, I don't know what those foot pedals are called. They're like for the rudders or something. So mm-hmm. his feet were hooked underneath there and he couldn't get his feet out. And then my husband, you know, because he was kind of unconscious on top of him. So until he couldn't get out of his seat. So once he got out, you know, I, I, it was pretty obvious that he was okay. He was walking around. I could talk to him. So it was the other two of them that were more seriously injured. You're forced to make a decision. All of your family are all scattered an hour away from each other in different directions. And you are walking away from this. Well, they made us all trauma teams. I had sure. also be a trauma team as well. I guess the next thing is, is let's just talk about the aftermath of what ended up happening. Once the, the dust settles, what do you find out about your family as you get all this information? Yeah. So, I mean, the accident happened at about 2.40 in the afternoon. I'm guessing that we were in the ER by four-ish. You know, I didn't hear anything about my husband for hours. You know, I myself was evaluated, had some minor injuries, had a concussion, had some bruises and cuts as well. And then I chose to go to the hospital that my um, daughter was because like I said, I knew she was more seriously injured and she was taking it into the operating room that night about nine o'clock. When she went into the operating room, one of the nurse managers rode with me in a taxi to the other hospital where my son was, so I could at least check on him. And then, you know, then I came back in an Uber um, back to the hospital to wait. Um, Three hours was supposed to be the surgery. It ended up seven hours, you know, so I was, you know, in in the waiting room, just waiting. So many questions I have just in terms of like, how do you even navigate the stress? How do you, how do you go through that? But on the back end of this surgery with your daughter, the doctors give you the news that I'm sure no mother wants to hear. Can you share what the initial diagnosis was and what they said? Yeah. The thing that was so amazing, I don't know if amazing is the right word. It's just like how hard it was to navigate this as a doctor. So that's why kind of my heart goes out to anyone who navigates this without like a medical interpreter or somebody who knows. I knew how to navigate the system in the hospital. I was on the phone on the field before we got to the hospital with one of my best friends who's a cardiothoracic surgeon because my daughter was having a abdominal pain. I was kind of like, what is going to happen in the ER? And, and literally within like, everything was like mobilized the next morning. One of my colleagues who's a spine surgeon connected with her surgeon. So she could find out exactly what happened. You know, the surgeons, when they come out, you know, they, they said it was going to be three hours. I know when they don't come out, it's not a good thing. And I should have known the way they looked when they walked out, you know, mm. I should but I think I was, again, just kind of in shock. And it's at this point, it's like six in the morning. It was a father-son neurosurgery team. And so they, they gave me the very technical description of what happened, which again, even still made nothing to me. Said, oh, you know, mm-hmm. the spinal sac ripped open. She had a burst fracture of her L3. And when we looked in, the nerves were ripped off. And I'm thinking, I mean, and I still think about how stupid I must have sounded saying, well, what, you know, did you reconnect the nerves, which I, I know you can't do that. 
you know, so I just remember, you know, him, him looking a little shocked that I said that, you know, because he's probably thinking this lady is a doctor. And I said, you know, will she walk again? And the son just kind of shrugged like, and said, I, we don't know. It's, it's going to take some time. And the dad was like, no, it's a bad, he mouthed, it's a really bad injury. And he mouthed, you know, no. So, you know, again, at that point, I didn't even know what questions to ask, you know, yeah. because I think I was just, I had been is, I'm up all night at this point, you know, I'm just still haven't heard much on the status of my husband. Yeah. Your husband is still an hour away and you're dealing with this on your own. That was really the hardest part is trying to make all these decisions by myself. How did you eventually just be able to center yourself in that moment? Was there anything that was helpful for you just to even get grounded? I mean, again, one of the other phone calls I made on the field was to my pastor. So I know Mm -hmm. I talked to him a couple times in the waiting room. I don't know. I mean, I must not have been talking. It was like, you know, one, two in the morning. I must not have been talking to people. I think my, my sister showed up at 1am with my daughter who we were supposed to get. So she ended up driving to pick her up and they had driven three hours to get to where we were. So they showed up about one in the morning. So then we were together after that. But again, um, I called my brother-in-law, my husband's brother, who happened to be flying home from a vacation and just diverted to fly close as close as they could get to where my husband was. And then his parents drove up to where he was because obviously I couldn't be at the bedside with him. And my, my brother-in-law is also an emergency room doctor. So it was really helpful. Yeah, for sure. And miraculously, somebody posted something on Facebook and one of our friends from med school lived five minutes from the hospital. So she went to the hospital. She's also an emergency room doctor. So she went and she kind of was in contact with me. So we had some people because, you know, we didn't live where the accident happened. What's the process from the day that the plane goes down till you are that you have all of your family even together again? What was the gap? So my daughter was in the ICU for two weeks. I didn't see my husband's accident happened on Friday. I didn't see him till Monday because Mm. I have no car. Right. Um, And so I had to wait for my father-in-law to drive down to pick me up. And then they'd have to leave somebody with my daughter because she had nobody, you know, So leave my mother-in-law and then he'd drive me back up and then they'd have to do that trip again. So they were driving four hours So I didn't see him every day, you know, and I could only see him for a few hours because my daughter had nobody. He had like four adults at his bedside, you know, and my daughter had just me. And what was his condition? You mentioned that there was a traumatic brain injury. You mentioned broken bones. Was he able to emotionally support you during this or was he? He was, he was in a coma for a week. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. And he, he also had to have surgery um, the next day on uh, some broken arm. They thought it was a broken leg. It ended up being a tendon rupture. He had a broken hip and he had a lot of broken bones in his face and a lot of, uh, you know, he, uh, cuts that needed to be sewn up, you know, so a lot of uh, bruising. So he was um, on the ventilator for a week and completely, and he doesn't remember the day of, and he probably doesn't remember the first couple, the first month after the accident. So Unbelievable. he pretty much, Yeah. Before we get into talking about your daughter's journey and everything that you had been through just as a mother and fighting the grimace diagnosis short of death, talk to me. There's a few things I hear you saying here. Number one, community, power of faith and community. You said having your, your, your pastor 
reaching out there. You talked about having other family. Was that an easy process for you? You know, many people in these sort of situations can be resistant to accepting help. They can feel like they don't want to be a burden. Were you able to accept that support? Were there some practices in hindsight, some tools that you use to navigate that crisis, to to self-regulate and to even be able to manage yourself? My guess, I don't know. I'm just guessing. I guess you can't really take care of the family long-term. This is an extended crisis unless you're taking care of yourself. How were you able to find the wherewithal and how did you do it? First of all, as far as the power of community, I um, have been in service, you know, my whole life. And so I'm very uncomfortable being on the receiving end. I'm much more comfortable being the person. Well, that's one of my traits is I'm the person that comes alongside a person in, in trauma and in crisis. And I'm the one that can navigate that. You know, I just had had during this time, my best friend was um, being treated for uh, recurrent cervical cancer. And she actually passed away before I could get home because Mm -hmm. I ended up moving, you know, having to be away for two months. And so I was the person that came through and like navigated that trauma for them and and helped that. So, so it was very, um, it was very uncomfortable for me. Um, And so I remember thinking, oh, no, I'm fine. No, my friend's saying, I want to come. And I'm thinking, why would you come? What are you going to (laughs) do? You know, my younger sister, who's always been my rock, she, she, I told her not to come and she just came, you know, she just came and she ended up coming five times within the eight weeks, you know, that we were out of town um, because we didn't get home for a couple months. Sure. Um, so um, as far as the power of community, it was very uncomfortable for me. Uh, my husband's boss, who's also a very good friend of ours, literally flew up that Monday and, you know, a couple of days later and flew uh, my other two kids home. So got to make sure they got home. And then we have, you know, our, my old nanny is my office manager. So she just literally moved in <laughs> and mm. stayed kids um, for, you know, until we got home until my husband got home after six weeks. And then my daughter didn't get home. My daughter and I didn't get home until eight weeks, but it was two weeks before they could be in the same rehab facility. So then I had to kind of find a facility that could do both brain injury and spinal cord. And even um, they got there within a day of each other, uh, which was then that was in New Jersey. The accident was in New York, but he was on the third floor. She was on the second floor and he didn't know about her because he still wow. didn't know about the accident. I mean, it was weeks until they could see each other and he, we could tell him what happened because they wanted to wait until he would actually remember it the next day. So that was really hard. And so the, the tools that I found that really helped me, and, and like I mentioned before about the breathing, the breath work, you know, which sounds kind of silly to a traditional doctor because everybody breathes, you know, well, but specifically, you know, the deep breathing, single nostril breathing, things that I had learned about. I also had a decent meditation practice before, you know, I've kind of fell off the wagon in the initial states and I'm like, I really got to get in. Um, I have an aura ring that measures my heart rate variability, my baseline heart rate, my sleep, everything. So I could see how my body was, how my heart rate came up and my variability was terrible. How my sleep was terrible. So I was monitoring all that in this. You talked about self-care. Absolutely. You know, moms, we put ourselves the last on the totem pole. You know, if you're going to be the caregiver, And there's a lot of care involved with a spinal cord injury, you know, I can't, yeah, I can't even imagine. 
it's so much more than walking, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, and she had some complications after surgery and she was very sick for a while. And so there was a lot. And then, you know, there was my husband's situation. He, you know, he was not weight bearing for six weeks. He had the broken arm. He had, you know, all the cognitive things that he had to recover from. So, um, one of my colleagues set me up on a, a phone call with JJ Virgin. Do you know? Do you know who she is? Yeah, very familiar with JJ. Yeah. She went through something similar with her son, right? Well, yeah. Her son was a, hit, a victim of a hit and run accident. So yes. she was so generous to hop on the phone with me and talk to me about what she knew about brain injury. Um, she doesn't know about spinal cord injury, um, but really, what was most helpful was her advice, mother to mother. And she wrote a book called Warrior Mom, which of course I got and read. And so, you know, in there, you know, she, when she was at the bedside and I think her husband, her, her son had a much more serious brain injury than my husband did. My husband miraculously has made, you know, a full recovery. I th- I don't think it, it's not because of, it wasn't a serious injury. There's something called a Glasgow coma score, which is out of 16 and his was a six. The lower the score, the poor prognosis, anything under eight is very serious. It's my belief that it is the power of prayer. And that's why he just, he recovered. So her advice was, you know, make sure, you know, I lost, I did lose some weight, you know, cause I wasn't eating at first. So there, once we got to rehab, there was a whole food. So I made it, my daughter was losing a lot. She lost like 20 pounds and she was only like 116 when she started. So she wow. didn't have 20 pounds to lose. So I had to feed her. So I had to make her eat. So I was, we were, you know, constantly getting the food and I didn't exercise for a couple of weeks because, you know, with my concussion, I couldn't. And also, you know, some, some, you know, my ankle was all bruised. So once I could get even to the point to walk on the treadmill, you know, exercise was always such a really big part. I was a huge runner, you know, so that to not be able to do that, that was my stress relief, you know? So I don't even think I ran until it's like two weeks, but once I could get into that kind of pattern to at least, you know, even if I was catching up on phone calls while walking on the treadmill. I tried to do that, you know, most weeks. And um, from there, you know, prioritize sleep, make sure you're eating and try to keep that meditation practice going, which was a stress relief. We also had something called heart math. Are you familiar with that? Heart math Institute. Yeah. Heart math, heart rate variability. So we had the trans, I didn't have it with me, but I had someone sent it up. And so my, I had my daughter do it. You know, she's also dealing with PTSD, Um, so she did it. I did it as well to try to help, you know, with the, the stress. I mean, there's a lot, I, I didn't know anything about trauma either. So, I mean, there was that whole learning curve. And so I'm still learning about that. Well, it's the physical trauma to the body. And then there's the emotional trauma on top of it, you know, just, it's the physical recovery, but my God, like the emotional scarring that I would have to think is just as, that's a whole separate component. Honestly, I probably haven't dealt with that very well because the whole first year was go, go, go searching, searching for what therapy should we do? What should we, where should I take her? What should I give her? You know, I was really, really had to advocate for her because basically what they were like, let's just get used to your wheelchair. Walk me through this. Chat me up about this. The doctors had just written this off. She'll be paralyzed. So the the surgeon who actually did her surgery was, like I said, it was a father-son team. The son was was the head of neurosurgery at this hospital. And it was not a trauma center. Um, So really, she was under triage. She should have also been probably life-flighted to the trauma center. But in hindsight, it was the right place for us to be. 
for sure. And again, and that's why, you know, you can't connect the dots looking forward, right? Only back. And so everything that happened was for a reason. So he's this big guy, six, five, kind of like, and we, she was kind of joking. I was kind of joking in the ER, um, what, before she went into surgery. And I said, are you as good as, you know, McDreamy, you know, from, you know, Grey's Anatomy is a neurosurgeon. And he was like, oh no, I'm better. You know, he was kind of kidding. It was kind of like a little bit arrogant and man, a few words, you know, but about 10 days after the surgery, he came in on a Sunday, sat down and told us about his story. He had had a very rare type of cancer his senior year that recurred again after chemo. They told him he basically wasn't going to survive. And he said he was a terrible patient. He didn't let anyone help him. And literally standing there with tears running down his face, you know, and we're like, our mouths are gaping open. And the moral of the story was like, do not let anybody tell you, you cannot do it. They told me I wasn't going to let you know, and he went back here to finish his, re- his residency and go on to be, you know, obviously be okay to operate, you know, that- I, that's great for an inspirational sort of Ted talk in the room to inspire somebody, but obviously inspiration only lasts for a short period of time. There is the very real reality of going through the therapy and trying every avenue to get your daughter back to a good place. So talk to me about what that looked like. How many different therapies were you trying? Were you going super alternative into some of the therapies? And what was, how do you maintain a positive mindset as you're going through that? So, yeah, I mean, that was difficult. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's almost I almost had an unfair advantage because I could literally go on PubMed. I could pick up the phone, talk to doc. Doctors would talk to me. Colleagues would set me up. You know, like if you're just a person, you don't have that access. So while I'm grateful, like I said, it almost was a little bit unfair. There was another guy who had a cervical spinal cord injury who was next door to us in rehab. And so we started sharing all our information with him and we've kept in touch and they're good friends of ours now because everything that we learn, we share with them too. When we got back to Akron, you know, uh, eight weeks later, uh, we went up to Cleveland Metro, which was the, the place for rehab. And the doctor basically was like, yeah, you know, we'll get you used to your wheelchair. Like I said, nobody had even gotten her up to stand until I think when she went back to Ohio State in January. First of all, they were telling her she wasn't going to go back to school that year. And she was like, I'm going back to school in January, you know? And she was, like I said, she was like 90 pounds and frail and, you know, and so she had a long way to go until she could even support her own body weight, you know, and recover. Thankfully, her spinal cord injury was low enough that her arms were completely fine. She just was weak, you know, so she had to recover from this big incision in her back and her core and everything and from not being in, from it being in bed for a long time. So she is one determined person. And you know what? She never once complained. She did mm. everything I said. She took the supplements I told her to take. So there were two there was a list of kind of like anti-inflammatory diet, integrative supplements, but the two things that made the biggest difference, I believe. Um, was we did something called the newbie, which is direct current. So it's literally electric current that, um, so they, there's something called FES, which is functional electrical stimulation, which is an alternating current. And that is aimed at con- contracting your muscles because since you're not using your legs, your muscles are going to shrink. And so we had that, but that isn't aimed at like recovery. It's aimed at preventing atrophy. 
And so somehow one of my doctor friends researched and found this therapy. There happened to be someone in my town who was certified in it, which is another miracle. And so we hooked up with him. He's a physical therapist. And so that is one thing that has returned um, function and sensation below the level of injury, which they said she never would get. Um, so she is able to, you know, she has some weak movements. She can move her legs out and back. You know, she occasionally can contract some of her quads, but they said, you know, you, you'll never have any movement below this level. Right. And so, um, so that has come back. And the second thing is I, um, gave her exosome. So you've heard of stem cells, stem cells make exosomes. So there are some tr- clinical trials of giving stem cells. They would take it out of your bone marrow, they would culture it, and then they would give them back to you. They were doing it at Mayo Clinic. And I did speak with them, but again, with the clinical trial, the way they were doing it, it was a surgery in the back. And she, um, because of her complications and the way she healed, she wasn't really a candidate for that. And also most of the spinal cord research is for higher level injuries in the neck. There's very little for her level, you know, below in the lumbar spine. So that was a frustrating thing as well. So I took her, you know, and I, I was desperate, you know, I would have taken her to Mexico for stem cells, which was crazy. And then, and then my doctor friends would be like, what are you doing? You know, you got to yeah. think of why I'd send things and then check this out, check this out. And so I had a sounding board of, you know, a couple of my neighbors, the cardiothoracic surgeon, and he's married to an OB. And so they are good friends of ours. So they, she was my sounding board too. It ended up, we went out to New Jersey um, to get exosomes and they were supposed to put them in her spinal column. But like I said, she, she didn't meet the criteria for that. So they just gave them to her IV. So I'm like, I can do that. So, you know, I set up an account and we give them to her then in the IV and every couple of months. And I think that has been what has really caused a lot of recovery for her. And then the last thing that we did, I think that really helped was, you know, one of the things we, we had to do, you know, it was summer, we had all these plans. I had to cancel a bunch of flights and do a bunch of things. So I was on the phone with United and they ask you why you have to, why, why are you canceling this flight? Cause if you have a medical reason, they, at the time now they don't charge you a cancellation fee, but back then they did. So I don't know what possessed me to tell this operator the reason why we had to cancel the flight. Well, she ends up knowing a colleague who had a spinal cord injury. He's opened a spinal cord uh, recovery place in, in Salt Lake City. So she, I look him wow. up, the doctor, he's an OBGYN. I message him on something called Doximity, which is like Facebook for doctors. He calls me within a couple hours talks to me for like an hour on the phone. And so we've gone out there twice already. And so they're specialized in spinal cord injury. And so it's just, it's because they're so rare, spinal cord injury is so rare and especially her level, especially her age, especially females, you know, only 20% are females. And most people are older when they are either male because they're doing crazy things or their average age is 40 when you have a spinal cord injury. So it was a little bit different because she's quite a bit younger. So we've gone out there a couple of times just for a week. You know, she does two a day things and they have a pool where you get them up and walk. And so, um, so those are the things I think that have made a huge difference for her. Um, and like I said, I mean, I looked, I'm constantly still trying to read. I have a Google doc. So people have reached out to me that their kids have had a spinal cord injury or they know someone just because you're in, I'm in a spinal cord injury Facebook group. And I've just shared my Google doc, you know, for anyone who wants to see what we did. And 18 months after the fact, your daughter's already recovered more than the doctor said would ever be possible for her. So can you tell us where she is right now 
in, in wow. terms of. Yeah. So she ended up getting some sensation and movement of her, what her is called her hip flexors, the muscles in the groin. Mm-hmm. So she got fitted for breaks. She can't bend her knees. She doesn't, she can't kick out her legs. So if her knees are fixed with braces on, she can walk with a walker, which again is more than they ever said she would do, you know? But just getting her up and getting someone up, you know how like you're on all day on Zoom now and when you're sitting for so long, it doesn't feel good. Can you imagine Mm -hmm. sitting in a wheelchair all the time? So just to get up and stand, you know, helps, you know, your, your hamstrings and everything. So she has braces now and they're called knee, ankle, foot orthotics, KAFOs. And first she started with a walker. Now she's got, I don't know what it's called, something that she pushes um, and eventually, hopefully she'll be, have arm crutches. So it won't replace the wheelchair at this point, but just to get up and walk. The first thing that she did before that, though, is there's something called an exoskeleton, which is like bionic legs. They put the suit on you and it, it senses you initiate the step and it moves. The computer does it for you. Wow. So she did that because she went to back to school at Ohio State, started therapy then and COVID happened. So she got sent right back home two months later. And so they canceled all her physical therapy. And I was like, we can't, we're in the first year. She cannot not have physical therapy. So again, through a patient of mine who was a physical therapist, they hooked her up with this guy at Cleveland Clinic and the neuro, it's actually used for people who've had a stroke, not so much spinal cord injury. So within the week we were there and the first day she got up and she walked like 400 steps, which is like a record for people the first time, you know? And so she did that two to three times a week for the next couple of months. And I think that built some of her muscles back up. It, it was moving it, her legs for her, sure. you know, at that point. And so I think that gave back some more strength and muscle so that when she got fitted with the braces, then six months later, her body remembered, you know, what it was like to walk. Tell me how you've maintained hope throughout this process. One of the things that JJ said to me, and and my daughter reminds me that I said to her, um, is that we're going to make this accident the best thing that ever happened to us. Not the accident, but what we do and who we could become because of it. And so, you know, in the early days, she didn't know her prognosis. She didn't understand. Nobody was clear with her about what this meant you know, and she kind of said, when am I going to start moving my legs again? You know, she thought she was going to go into surgery and just recover. You know, I told her, you know, this is not, this is not where your story ends. You know, I'm going to do everything and we are going to talk to people. We're going to do everything. And so she just told herself then she's not going to be the plane crash girl, you know, and she doesn't know what her ultimate, you know, outcome is going to be, but she is going to live her life the best in the wheelchair in the meantime. So she, competed in Miss Wheelchair USA pageant, you know, which was supposed to be live, but was virtual. So she's Miss Northern USA. And so then she just joined the Rolettes, which um, is a wheelchair dance team in LA. So because she doesn't live there, she's just like a little sis that goes out for for some uh, performances. She's not like a main thing. She'd have to move there, which she's considering doing that when she graduates from college. So, so yeah, so she's doing all these things. She came home in, in September and by October, she was in community theater again and they asked her to be in the community theater. So she performed in her wheelchair, you know, a month after getting back in Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat on community theater, which she had been in that play a couple of years before. So the director, asked, you know, so reached out to her and said, we need people. Do you think you can do this? And she wasn't sure, but it ended up being the best thing for her. 
So she's just, I, last night I drove down to Columbus to see her in another performance, uh, small. Amazing. Yeah. So Amazing. she's, you know, she gets most of the credit, you know, probably all of it, you know, so she seeing how she's persevered and how she's handled it makes it easier for me because a lot of the parents that I talked to their kid, you know, drank, refused to go to therapy, got deeply depressed, you know, and, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I mean, COVID was not good to her. She's extroverted. She finally got back to school and now she's isolated. So that was really hard in the beginning stages. You know, she didn't see her boyfriend for six weeks, which they had not ever gone that long because they were sweethearts. She gives me strength the way she's handling it, you know, and I think probably she's mentally dealt with it better than I have. Cause I think, like I said, the first year was like, go, go, go search, 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 do, do, do right. Instead of feel. Well, that would be the other part that I was going to ask you about. It's an amazing story. So much credit to your daughter for even being able to have that mindset and stay focused on the prize and for what she wants rather than just accepting the reality that somebody presented to her. What have you learned about yourself in this process? And what have you taken away with that has changed you in terms of how you just approach your life day to day? I've had a lot of of things that I've had to persevere. Like I said, even just training to be an OB. And so everybody always says, oh, you're so strong. I wouldn't be able to do it. You know, you would, you would do it. You would be able to do it. Um, You'd find the way to do it. So I guess in some ways I feel like a little bit pat myself on the back that I was able to navigate this, keep my practice running. We finished in the positive that year, you know, and try to parent my other two kids who were twins. It was their senior year. It was supposed to be all about them, you know, and you know that how that ended up because of COVID, no graduation, no prom, everything. So trying to keep some sense of normalcy for them and trying to do college visits. You know, when I came home, I went right into college visits on the board of show choir, all that stuff. So On the one hand, you know, I learned a lot about myself, about what I can handle. Um, On the other hand, you just got, you know, nothing is permanent. Everything changes in a Mm. second. Your life can change, you know, and so it does give you a little bit more gratitude. And I think, you know, focusing and leading from a place of gratitude is helpful. You know, don't get me wrong. I have my pity parties that I, I, you know, think about things, but some relationships, you know, the ones you thought were going to sustain you didn't pan through. And the ones came out that came out of the woodwork to support you, you know, you really learn who is your true friend. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you do have, I, you have a whole new appreciation. I, my kids would probably say that I parent differently. You know, I try to parent to the heart. I was, I was raised really strict. And so I was probably strict, you know, and, you know, so I I would like to think that I, I parent differently as well. Absolutely. And I know that this is all going to be a Ted talk soon, uh, that you're going to be doing that this fall. If you could leave with one takeaway that you would like the listener to to understand today, I think the thing that resonates for me is that nothing is permanent, both in terms of, you know, we're going to face adversity. The good times don't always last forever. There will be challenges. But I also hear that in reverse, that, you know, even from the most grim times, those are not permanent and that you're finding ways to move forward. Do you still, you know, do you and your daughter still hold the vision? When you think five years ahead, where do you see your family on the back end of this? 
So the biggest thing that I keep thinking is, you know, every morning the sun comes up, right? Yeah. The, the, dark, the night is the darkest. The sun always comes up. And so I try to keep thinking about that, you know, and so I think my biggest takeaway, like kind of to piggyback on what you said is you don't have to be your diagnosis or your prognosis, right? You, I want people to have hope. Nobody knows. I'm a doctor. We don't know. You know, we may say something because like I said, at the same time, I saw my friend when they told her she had a 0% chance of five-year survival from her recurrent cervical cancer. Who says that, right? Guess what happened? She checked out, right? She just checked out. She didn't have any hope for any life that she always had cancer. So I saw the reverse happen with her during this time period for us. And so in five years, I think, um, you know, my daughter's going to graduate on time, you know, after all of this, she amazing, by the way, (laughs) amazing. She is going to take a gap year because she didn't get everything together to do, to do her grad applications. She wants to be a trauma therapist. So she was already Mm -hmm. going to be a therapist and go get a PsyD and a master's, but now she wants to help people who've been through trauma. And so she um, is going to take a gap year, get her application together. And, you know, that she needs to be mentally strong to do that as well. I have a sister who's a psychologist and she's kind of coached her and said, you know, this is tough. Like medical school is tough, but this, when you're going to be a psychologist, you're going to have to do your own psychoanalysis, right? So she has to process all her trauma and go through everything that she's going to do. But her next goal, and this is not an announcement or anything, but she wants to walk down the aisle. You know, so, I love it. Yeah. And so she's, you know, her boyfriend, they've been dating since they were 17. It's been five years. And so at some point, I'm sure there's going to be, you know, some news. I don't know if it'll be, it might even still be a couple years off, but I think you know, that's her next goal is she, I, I think she wants to, whether she can put her braces on underneath her dress and, you know, but I think that she wants, she wants to stand at her wedding. What an incredible young woman. And for you, five years from now, how are you taking this experience that would break so many people? And where do you see yourself in in five years? not out on that yet, Dan. I still (laughs) break. (laughs) We got your back. You're not broken. Jeez, you know what? And that's the other thing. Maybe now I'm just realizing it. I'm like completely living in the present. Through this, I think that's the way I've coped is I can only learn and function today. And I'm a planner. Like I graduated at 17 and I was a a doctor by 23. You know, I had my eye on the prize. Everything was mapped out. So I guess that's another change is like what you got to take one day at a time, just one thing. So when I have to stop and reflect in five years, um, it's hard because in some ways in my mind, I wanted to go completely back to normal, but I, you know, it's not ever going to be that way, you know, Um, but, but I want her to keep regaining some function and, and, uh, continuing to improve. So you never know what is gonna, what kind of therapy is going to be out. I've, like I said, talked to doctors that are one person's doing a nerve transplant surgery and you just never know what's going to be out there. And and I believe, I do believe in miracles. Well, You've given us a wonderful gift today with your story. Thank you so much for sharing. Looking forward to the TED Talk when it happens this fall. Uh, Tara Scott, where can people find you on social media if they'd like to connect? So I'm at Revitalize Med on Instagram and Facebook. Revitalize Med is my website as well. All the best to you and your family. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Dan. So many things that I love about that conversation, but one of them 
is just the synchronicity of life and how we are supported in every moment. Imagine calling an airline to change over a plane ticket. And if it were you, I know this is certainly the case for me, would you really explain the story of what had happened to your family? Or would you have the mindset that, God, I I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to bother this person and come up with maybe some false story that would be less ominous or less difficult to explain. And yet, by simply speaking up in that moment and owning her truth, Tara is led to the particular operator who knows the medical person who helps them in the recovery. Also, so often we talk about context, and life is rarely about what happens to us. It's what we're making it mean. And to have that inner strength to go through a plane crash, to be left paralyzed, and still own a belief that this accident is going to be the best thing that ever happened to our family. So powerful, and you can see just that inner strength of her daughter and everything that she's accomplished in the short term with, you know, the Miss Wheelchair USA pageant. Just a remarkable, inspiring story. If you enjoyed it, please share this with a friend. You can screenshot the podcast, upload it to Instagram, tag Dr. Tara Scott at RevitalizeMD. Be sure to tag me at CSC Dan Mason and let us know what were your takeaways? What was your inspiration? Also, don't forget, you can give us a follow here on the iHeartRadio app. For all my friends listening on Apple, those five-star ratings and reviews really mean the world. It helps us with the algorithm, so be sure to do that. And if you're ready to step up and create your next level of success, fulfillment, happiness, if you are ready to come out of this pandemic and the reopening is a better version of you, I would be honored to mentor you. You can find all the details on my coaching programs and apply right now at my website, creativesoulcoaching.net. In the meantime, turn down the volume on your negativity, turn up the volume on your purpose so you can live life amplified. I'll talk to you next week.